Okay, so this was a movie that I really, really enjoyed when it when it came out a few years ago. It was actually one of my top two or three of the year that year. So I was very much looking forward to watching it again. I did thoroughly enjoy it again. And then I began my research and realized it's all but completely fabricated. <laughs> yeah, there's a it's as far as uh, historical accuracies in the movies that we're talking about go, it's uh, it's it's probably towards the bottom of the list. Honestly. It is, and that kind of surprised me. Now, in a very broad stroke sense, like we were, or the British were fighting the Germans, and Alan Turing did help <laughs> with decoding things, <laughs> and the you know the characters' names existed, <laughs> like. It I, it was bad. Like I mean, so again, it's a great movie. They did a good job of taking elements from real life and right. twisting them in a way that made a really powerful, compelling, well written movie. But right. it's it's fiction. It's fiction, and, right? And I I don't right. I, I don't want that to sound like oh, I'm saying that the movie is bad because right, it's not right. historically accurate. It's a good Correct. movie. It's just not historically accurate. What, and again, the one that famously gets beaten up the most in you know i guess the blogosphere is braveheart but i would say that that's a probably a good comp is braveheart it's they're both very good movies but they're both pretty loose with with the facts and getting history right and braveheart's actually probably more historically accurate in a lot of ways but yes yeah, so i don't not really sure not really sure where to start i, I kind of want to start with the movie but again because it is so i'm trying to think maybe we could just kind of talk about what they did get right in the broadest of strokes and just kind of see where that leaves us and we can okay. kind, of, kind of bounce back and forth so for, first let's, let's talk about the plot before we get into the characters and alan turing himself at the end of the day the british uh, intelligence service here in the movie is trying to crack the unbreakable german enigma machine which is basically just how they encode morse code messages which are then sent out, and it's easy to, like, the Germans know that the signals themselves are being intercepted. They basically can't stop that. It's just kind of going out there in the radio waves or whatever. But they they right. kind of trust that those messages are successfully encrypted with this powerful encryption machine, and that the Allies are kind of helpless to stop them. And our main group's task is to break the unbreakable code, and that's kind of the plot of the movie. But even that is, like we've said, disingenuous because there were various versions of the Enigma machine over the years. The the Poles had actually cracked versions of it before. And so, yes, this group was working on decoding, but it wasn't this magical breakthrough. No one had ever even come close to accomplishing what we've accomplished with Turing's machine. And praise be to Turing and the glory of his first computer to have cracked the Unbreakable Code. So, like, they did right. help. because. They, and they, I think they bring that up in the movie. I think he's, well, I think he says, oh, it's based on like a Polish design or something. Oh, they do mention that. Okay. But yeah. And the other thing is that once they break it, the movie kind of makes it sound like, oh, we broke it. Like, it's good. We're done. And like, <laughs> that's not like the Germans figured it out that it was broken. And then they started just making more and more complicated Enigma machines that right. then they had to work harder and harder to keep breaking like it was a continuous effort throughout the whole war. Right. And it is also, uh, from my understanding of the, the way that that machine works is it's a little bit inaccurate the way that they show it like, Oh, we, you know, put in one message and we, ha we know what the settings are for that day. It doesn't really do that. It just kind of like 
cuts out a bunch of the possibilities so that human code breakers could then refine the results and then figure out oh, okay. the actual settings of the of the machine. Gotcha. So it doesn't necessarily produce it, it just narrows it down narrows down your search. Right. Right. Which they do they kinda hint at, but they kinda do say that the machine kind of spits it out. But uh so jumping kind of to the climax of the movie, when they, they realize, oh wow, because we know certain phrases and words are gonna be in every message that's how we can break the code. And, oh my gosh, we hadn't thought of that before. And that's the end of the movie because we solved the problem. And they said, and then what I was reading online is, it was the opposite. They knew from the beginning, of course, that there were certain words that would be in certain messages. That's how they started, right. not how they right. ended. Yes, that's, that's how they started. And it's also the, uh, we're like, oh, you know, we can't have the same. But basically that and the fact that they, you know, the, the machine would never produce the same letter as itself. Oh, okay. So th- those two things were like big, I guess, tools that they used gotcha. in their in the code. If, breaking. if there's an A in the code, then you know that that's not actually the letter A, right? Which is kind of a flaw. I guess if I'm designing encryption, I would not want I would not want to eliminate that possibility. Sometimes an A might be an A, but I guess I would want, and I don't, and actually I don't know. It, it was there's no way it was just a one for one cipher, right? Like I always figured in these encrypted messages that like the first A was an A, but the second A might be an F and then the third A right, might be because, a D. Because the rotors, the rotors turned, right. but it was all based on the, all based on the initial setting. Okay. Right. Right. So you would have an initial setting for the message. You would type out the message, type it out. It would give you this string of random letters. Then you set this, the machine, I guess, to that same gotcha. setting, type out those random letters and it, brings out the message right and then someone on the other end just has to have that same string of letters to set their machine to it too so basically both the receiving and the sending end have the same code to go off of or how did that right yeah and i don't know how they knew like how the germans would communicate that to each other i think that was delivered so what's funny is so i don't think they mentioned it in the movie and i actually didn't see it in my research here but i just actually finished reading not too long ago a book called uh cryptonomicon by neil stevenson okay. if you've heard of that by chance it's actually very directly related to this. So it's uh, a little going off tangent here, but I think it's relevant. So it has a few simultaneous storylines, and it was written in the late 90s. So one is kind of following these early internet people in the late 90s who are dealing with like cryptocurrency and, and encrypting emails. And so they're dealing with, you know, basically internet encryption. And that flashes back to par- uh, two stories set during World War II. And one of those storylines involves a mathematician who ends up meeting and working with Alan Turing. Okay. And so the encryption of things during World War II is also related. Now, they don't deal specifically with Bletchley Park, but they are World War II cryptographers solving the thing. And, and, again, so it's, and it's kind of multiple storylines just kind of dealing with all that. And what they talked about a lot in that book was the use of one-time pads. And my understanding is basically I would physically deliver to you the list of codes that we're going to use on specific days, I guess, which again, seems like that would keep be intercepted. Oh, but okay. the idea is like, but it was like every day you're in the mail would be, okay, here's today's one-time pad code that we're setting our machines to. And now we can broadcast right. that, which I guess if it got intercepted, you would know not to use it. Yeah. Right. And it could also be like a, I mean, you could deliver like a whole book, maybe like a few months at a time. Like, all right, here's this book, you know, it's going to take us right, to, right. you know, April, Every every day, what your rotor setting should right, be. provided you had a chain of custody thing where you can make sure that it wasn't compromised along the way. Sure, but you you could probably figure out that during a war effort uh, to some extent. So 
The other big thing too is, so they kind of set up Turing to be this stubborn, oh, curmudgeonly kind of just, oh, what do you call it when someone, uh, a misanthrope, kind of this kind of this stubborn misanthrope who doesn't want to work with anybody else and everybody else is just going to, they can't handle his genius and they just need to back off while he works on his computer, which they don't think is going to work and he's just working on it by himself. But again, that's in the movie. In real life, right. everyone helped him with the computer and Turing yeah. was mostly a normal person. Like, he, yeah, yeah, he was really smart and he might have been confident, but like he got along with people. That was just completely invented for the movie, too, it seems. And even just the dyna- all the dynamics within the crew they set up at Bletchley Park is just not accurate. So the actor who plays Tywin Lannister, uh, I forget the actor's name, but he's kind of the boss overseeing it. He's kind of the guy underneath Churchill, but also isn't involved with the daily work of the uh, cartography team. And they kind of just set him up as someone who just. You know, it's very short-tempered and doesn't believe they're actually going to solve anything. He's going to knock down the door to destroy Turing's computer. And nope, that that guy was actually very supportive of what they were doing in real life. And everything was just overly dramatized to the point that they were inventing drama for the movie that really just didn't exist. Right. And I I didn't see anywhere in what I was reading. But so in in the movie, they kind of I don't they obviously they don't explicitly say this, but they like heavily imply that. Uh, Alan Turing was on the autism spectrum. Is that accurate at all? Right. I could not find it. I don't think it is. What I was saying is he was basically just, you know, a normal, friendly guy who got along with people. And a lot of that was all just kind of made up. And yes, he was gay. And, you know, that was a secret at the time. But just the whole back dealings and the guy idea, the idea of this Russian plant, using that against him to keep things a secret, like, Everything was invented for the, for the movie, other than like the simplest of details. It seems like so. Yeah, but yes, Bletchley Park was the place where this was happening, and you know, broad strokes too. Like there were some people recruited during you know using those puzzles that they kind of published, but Turing himself was not directly involved with any of that. That's not how is it? Uh, is Jean the girl played by Keira Knightley? Joan Joan Clark. So. She was hired just on her own merit. She was not. She was not one of the hires that came through the the puzzle thing, and and then even her relationship with Alan. Yes, they were engaged at one point, even though he was gay. But it wasn't even as romanticized as it was in the show, with them being kind of like platonic BFFs. Even that's an exaggeration of their actual relationship. It sounds like so. Okay, so that is kind of intercut. Now I did not look up a lot on Turing's younger school days. But again, the fact that they kind of made him still kind of that, you know, young boy that seemed to be on the spectrum and in his the whole Christopher thing, I, I actually didn't see anything about that. So I, I'm going to guess it was probably invented. They did say that the computer was not called Christopher. It was called Victory. Oh, I saw in the uh, the crash course video. They, oh, OK, they said that they called the computer the bomb. Oh yeah, yeah. So no, I, I almost, I got the feeling that that was like a type of thing. Like victory was a bomb. Does that make sense? Oh, okay, that makes. Because I was reading, because yeah. I was reading, they were talking on on Wikipedia was talking about a Polish bomb, a British bomb, an American bomb, and it was like, oh, okay. and, and it was like B O M M E. It's B O B O M B E. Okay, okay. Which I guess, okay, yeah, you're right. It's a a type of electromechanical device that you use to help break a, an Enigma machine. So okay. there's, yeah, you're right. And then of course, then the whole story on both ends is bookended by uh, 1951 Britain when Turing's apartment is broken into, and because of how Turing acts when they show up to kind of help investigate, he just kind of blows them off. 
a detective thinks there's something up. So he goes to just kind of investigate a little deeper, looks for Turing's war record, which is not only classified, it's basically been expunged completely like it didn't exist. And his theory is that Turing might be a Russian agent or something because now we're in the midst of the Cold War. Right. And what it comes to light is that, oh, no, Turing is actually homosexual and is trying to cover up that. Which I'm, I don't know how much of that is accurate, but I again, broad strokes, there was a burglary in like 1952 or 1953 at Alan Turing's house. And during the course of that investigation, it came out that he was gay. Correct. I don't know. No, if, correct. I don't know if, if the whole like, oh, we looked for his war records and couldn't find him and they were expo- I don't know how much of that is accurate. That part was fabricated. So Okay. Yes, he was broken into and, and through that investigation they did discover his homosexuality, but the whole possibility of the Russian spy thing, that part was just kind of invented. Gotcha. And even little things too. It's like it said, like, you know, I can always kinda of write down the quote text at the end of the movie. And it was saying even some of that was disingenuous. Well, yeah, where they say like, oh, yeah, you know, he invented the Turing machine and today we call those computers. And it's like, uh, no, like a Turing machine is like an early computer, but like it's it's a very specific thing. It's not, you know, you wouldn't call like, you know, your iMac. Oh, this is a, a Turing machine. Like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And that would, again, in the Turing test is what is used more today. And, 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 and again, right. we're talking, talking broad strokes. No, he, he, he was instrumental in the development of the modern computer, but he was definitely not an isolated uh, person within that effort. But yes, and, and, and again, I want to talk about computers here in a second, too. But no, specifically, I was talking about, so he did, he did ultimately kill himself in 1954. And the quote at the end of the movie, and I guess we should, we're kind of bouncing all over the place as we do. But obviously, in the 1950s, homosexuality was even more taboo uh, than it well yeah, today. It's basically gone completely. But you know, it was, it was to, to a point that it was illegal. It was illegal. Yeah, I was going to say not not just taboo. Yeah, it was straight up against the law. So I do think his sentence in here is accurate. So in the movie, they say he was that given is, a choice yeah. a choice between uh, prison time or hormonal therapy or chemical castration, and he opted for right. the latter. That is accurate. He was chemically yes. castrated for homosexuality because he. Well, he wanted to continue his work, and so he said, well, I can't do that from prison, so I guess I'll take my chances with the hormone therapy. But then that was, I mean, it, it just it affected his, his mood and his mental process so much that he just, yeah, eventually committed suicide. But again, that's just in the movie, and that sounds like a fabrication as well. So oh, really? Yeah, so basically, yes, he was put on chemical castration, but... That uh, regiment had actually ended for a while before he ever actually killed himself. He had been off of that for a while. Now, I think it had ran its course. I don't think it reverts. And then also his friends basically said they didn't really notice any difference. He was still the same person. He was still working on his stuff. Huh. And it was almost kind of an unchanged thing. And yes, he was depressed. And yes, he had issues. But yeah, it's, yeah the movie is just completely fabricating everything to make it more dramatic. That's funny, though, because I did I did read in like multiple places, though, that the hormone therapy supposedly changes mood. I wonder if that's like, I don't know, urban legend or, or, or what? Yeah, or maybe it wasn't enough that his friends noticed it, but but it, you know, maybe it, it, maybe it did affect his his work a little bit. But but when he did kill himself, he had been off of that for a while. Okay, so it, it again, the timeline was just a little more complicated than the movie made it seem, which disappointingly yeah. so because usually in closing text, even a movie that's inaccurate gets the closing text right. But uh, Wikipedia d- d- dedicates a whole section on their page about the movie to all the inaccuracies uh, at the end. Or sorry, th- throughout. Usually that's true, but sometimes there are 
pretty big gaps. A, a pretty famous example, not to get too far off track here, but in one of the episodes of Band of Brothers, at the end of this, uh, I guess it's not text, it's like a, a voiceover at the end of the episode, but he's like, oh yeah, so-and-so you know, never recovered from his wound and he died in a hospital in like 1947. And that guy like recovered completely and huh. lived into like the late sixties. Right. What the heck? <laughs> and that's like a real, like a real guy who's like the focus of the episode. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. That's yeah. It, it's it, like I said, you always kind of trust closing text more than other, other parts of the movie. And I guess there's, there's no reason we should do that. I think we've just kind of been trained that it tends to be more accurate, but yeah, not so much. One thing I thought was cool early on is the MI6 guy that they meet early on. And one of the people in Turing's group says, there is no MI6. And then the the, the guy says, well, not officially. And I just like the idea that, isn't, yeah, go ahead. Isn't that, an, isn't that inaccurate, though? I mean, surely, even if, if it wasn't widely known that there was an MI6, I'm pretty sure that existed long before World War II. I think it did. The, the but foreign MI, intelligence service. MI6 was not publicly acknowledged until 1994. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so I thought that was interesting, too. And I, I kind of looked. There's actually up to, like, MI19, and they're all just kind of different branches of military intelligence for the British, and most of them don't exist anymore. And they, it just it kind of had the quick little history bullet points. And it, it, it wasn't as interesting as I thought it would be. Like, I thought it was going to yeah. be very clear-cut things, and MI6 was like the spies. But it's, no, nah, it's again, it's more just kind of gray and messy, and MI6 just happens to be the swan. So they're kind of playing it up, because it isn't it referenced in Bond? Doesn't Bond deal with MI6? But Bond is like a member of MI6. Well, in I guess yeah, in he's the, within the umbrella of MI6 in that universe, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's kind of just uh, one of, one of many. So let's finish up the movie here first. Then I actually want to get into the history of the treatment of homosexuals, followed by the history of computers. But I want to finish up the movie first. Do you have anything else on on the movie itself? I know we kind of went over it kind of quick, but. There's, that's really all there is to it. It's just them trying to break through the machine and then it's a try-fail cycle until they successfully yeah. do it. Nothing really comes to mind. I did just kind of want to bring up a couple of related movies. Oh, yes. So the movie uh, U571 is a dramatized version of the capture of the first Enigma machine. Oh, okay. Which I've seen the movie, but I don't think I realized that. Right, which I think actually in real life it was it was the Brits that did it and not americans but of course <laughs> yeah the, in the movie that's like the plot of the movie is they're trying to capture this german uh u-boat and to get the enigma machine because it's like the beginning of the war interesting the other related movie is uh, ex machina the 2015 movie with uh oscar isaac yes and uh donald gleason and uh oh, what's the girl's name uh alicia vikander yeah alicia vikander married to magneto oh dang <laughs> yeah the, the whole the whole premise of that movie is like a well, the the setup for that movie is that uh, Donald Gleason gets called in to do a Turing test. That's right. On the robot that is played by Alicia Vikander. That's right. It's it's yeah. That movie that basically that movie is one big Turing test. Yeah, that's right. uh, even even for the viewer to a point. Yeah, which is which is fascinating. That was actually my favorite movie that year. Good show. Good show. Um, I, I did think of one thing too. So when, when in the movie they break the code. And then instantly have the moral dilemma of, oh, wait, we can't just call off every attack we're suddenly aware of because then the Germans will know. Right. The example they give in the movie, again, completely fabricated. The character who says, but my brother's on the ship, 
didn't have a brother that would be on any set, such ship. It was that was all complete fabrication for the movie. Those kinds of decisions did have to be made, but it was at a higher level, and I I couldn't find anything that said Turing was actually involved with. Again, the, the movie kind of implies that they shift gears to help them kind right. of solve those, make those decisions. It's almost like the British government wouldn't let mathematicians just make those decisions. <laughs> it's almost like they would want, you know, policymakers or somebody. Right, doing that. right, right. Well, and they did in the movie. <laughs> the movie did kind of imply that they were coming up with a a statistical based analysis. But again, I that seemed to be fabricated, and that one felt real. That felt real, and I couldn't find anything about it. It kind of just said that, and they hint about this in the movie too. It made it sound like they used most of the information they got, provided yeah. they could come up with a other an alternate excuse. As long as we can justify right. it with, and they said one that was particularly sketchy in real life. They got the German, the super suspicious. Like they basically just show up out of nowhere and take out this group that was going to attack uh, an allied, you know, outpost or you know whatever. And the Germans were super suspicious, so they basically sent out a message and said. Thank you, spy in Naples, for cracking that code and getting us the information. Well done. But it was just sent out to no one who actually existed. But it kind of placated the Germans enough that they just made up a they just made up a spy to send a message to. Basically, yeah, that's one thing that's interesting about World War II specifically is all of the military deception stuff because yeah. technology was at a point where it was like this this perfect kind of point where like the ability to spy on you know your adversary had gotten good enough but yet wasn't quite good enough to where you, the your adversary might still be able to fool you and so there's all these like fun stories of like like there was a, a fake base in the south southern part of the UK that was set up and they had like just a few guys there with a bunch of like inflatable trucks and huh. tanks and stuff so that from the air it looked legit um, and then they also like they would send out like fake weather reports and fake, you know, status updates and like two guys with all these radios just like talking to each other, having conversations huh. to make it seem like there's this whole big unit there. I saw something that kind of said that when it came to oh code breaking stuff, the Brits kind of got annoyed with the Americans because the Americans would set up these like ostentatious bases with high security because there was important intel happening but it basically was like a big you know flashing red light that important stuff is happening here versus the british opted for oh a cabin in the woods that's just a cabin in the woods nothing happening there and they were doing the super important stuff basically in plain sight in a seemingly unimportant area and there was kind of like a feud between the two over the best way to handle this highly sensitive information right so, because so we, we throughout the timeline of this series, this show, whatever call it, you call it, this podcast, <laughs> we've uh, we've definitely come across characters who were believed to have been in varying degrees uh, homosexual, but we haven't really talked about society's view of homosexuality and how it has evolved through history. So, I thought as we're in the 20th century and dealing with Alan Turing, who was you know seen to be at the time a, a criminal for it. I wanted to kind of go brief, give a brief rundown of societal views of it. But specifically, I just pulled up the timeline of uh, homosexual treatment or history in Britain specifically. So because we are dealing with with Britain, I just kind of highlighted a few things. And I was going to go through this very briefly leading up through the 50s and touring. And then down the line, I'm sure we'll get to the more modern views of it as well. So... Even back when the Romans controlled Britain, like in the first century AD, they criminalized homosexual behavior among boys and men. 
Now, Emperor Hadrian, though, and actually I didn't realize this. So some of these people I was familiar with, Emperor Hadrian, who built the famous Hadrian's Wall in Britain there, he was fairly openly homosexual. Huh. And and, sl- and slept with boys and stuff. Now I think he still probably sired children or whatever because you kind of did your duty. And then in Braveheart, we did talk about Edward II. That's Longshanks's, Longshanks's son who was, again, not technically openly gay, but it was one of those open secrets where everyone around him knew it. And they were even kind of like, you know, out to get his, his lovers and stuff because he was giving them too much power. And, you know, a quote here that's fairly contemporary, even kind of talked about Edward quote, particularly delighted in the vice of sodomy, unquote. And it, it was it was fairly open there. Now, Henry VIII in 1533 passes the Buggery Act, which made male-male sexual activity punishable by death. They called it the Buggery Act? Is that the official name of it? <laughs> it's, that's how it's underlined on this entry here. And it's referred to multiple times as the Buggery Act of 1533. Oh my gosh, that might be the most British thing I've ever heard. <laughs> right? <laughs> and the other one, and I didn't come across him before too, another one who was very similar to Edward II, and he was basically, it was basically an open secret that he was gay, was James I, the first Stuart king uh, following Elizabeth II. Or sorry, Elizabeth huh. I. When Elizabeth I died and they brought over the Stuart kings, James I had had multiple lovers, and it was pretty much an open secret that he was gay as well. Now, again, he did father children who would become kings themselves, but pretty much uh, all but a certainty that James I was gay as well. Let's see. Flash forwarding to the 17th century. Uh, this is just a little incidence where in the courts, a same-sex marriage that basically got snuck through ended up being annulled. So two women married and basically just had on paper one pretending to be a man so they could get married. And when it was uncovered, they basically said, whoa, 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 that guy's a girl, you two can't get married. But it actually had to go through the courts to get annulled or whatever. And that was in 1682, which I thought was kind of interesting. Oh, wow. So in, in the 1720s, there was something called, they called him a Molly House. And there's this particular lady called Mother Clap who ran a coffee house. And it was, again, a lot of these things were open secrets, like everyone kind of knew, but no one necessarily did anything about it. But basically, it was just a common place for the gay community to meet. And again, this is in the 1720s. And she was just kind of, you know, very okay with having the gay men meet and, you know, socialize at her coffee house and had beds there that they could use and stuff. And ultimately, it was uh, shut down and three men were hanged after it was raided. But yes, again, so that was the 1720s. So you're kind of de- you know, there's basically people who have been tolerant of it throughout. Just the, uh, right. the powers that be in the government were have always kind of been against it. There's uh, they found love letters in the 1730s between like a member of parliament and another guy that implied heavily they had been living together as a gay couple for 10 years, and it was just kind of uncovered through their letters. In the 1770s, we actually had the first public debate about homosexuality. Now, again, this is one where a, a captain was actually convicted of sodomizing a 13-year-old boy, but it, again, it started having the public conversation of just about, not the merits, but just instead of this being the secret that no one actually publicly talked about, they were now publicly talking about homosexuality and, and, and how to deal with it. And a decade later, you had the first guy kind of publicly arguing that, hey, we should decriminalize this and not treat it as, you know, something that we're killing people over, obviously. Right. So now, and again, and again, everything kind of ebbs and flows. At the beginning of the 19th century, prosecutions were kind of uh, hitting a hitting a high point. Okay, so then we get to 1835 is when the last two British men were executed 
for homosexuality. It was, so it remained illegal, but the death penalty was officially abolished in the in 1861 after the last people were killed in 1835. Then you kind of flash forward into the 1890s, and that's where Oscar Wilde was famously tried for what they call gross indecency and sentenced to two years of hard labor. And again, though, just, you know, 60 years earlier, he could have been put to death for the same thing. Right. And the first gay rights group in England was in 1897, which I thought was way longer ago than I would have guessed. Yeah. Then there was, uh, there was this guy who wrote a, even call him a sexologist, uh, Havelock Ellis. He publishes uh, kind of a volume about, you know, the psychology of sex and just the studies of sex. And again, this is also in 1897. And he basically just argued that, hey... It's not a disease. It's a natural anomaly that happens in humans and animals and kind of always has and should just kind of be accepted and not treated as something that's wrong with these people. And again, this is in 1897. But because it's in 1897, the book is banned in England as obscene. (laughs) Of course it is. Right. So, and it wasn't actually sold in England for another 40 years. Oh, wow. This is another one I found fascinating. In 1936, you actually had... A prominent British athlete transitioned from female to male. Uh, so he's a little bit of a transsexual situation in 1936. What sport? Uh, it, say? it says athletic champion, which at the time, I would guess, would mean track and field. Track and field used to just be called okay. athletics. So that's my guess, right. but I don't know for sure. I didn't click on his actual page there. And yeah, but the, the story was in the papers and stuff. And there was even a surgeon who worked with them. And... Yeah, I was kind of surprised to see that on there. And then, like I said, and then, you know, 20 years later, getting to Alan Turing. And again, there's other examples here, but Alan Turing was obviously a a prominent person. So obviously, they kind of kept secret how much they helped during the war. But he was still a important computer scientist. Like in the movie, the cop that's interviewing kind of mentions having read his paper. So he was well, well known as an important figure in the scientific community, even if the level of his helping of the of for the decoding wasn't known. So when he was arrested as a professor and everything, it was a big deal. And again, the charges are basically just like gross indecency because they don't want to say it. And he did ultimately opt for or was, you know, was sentenced to chemical castration, which of course is just so barbaric. But then you get uh, flash forward all the way again here to 2002. And again, so I know I jumped a lot there. I basically jumped half a, half a century, but that's kind of when you get to it's just crazy how how much it was one way forever and yeah they finally repealed the death penalty associated with it but then just in the last you know two decades here everything's just done a complete 180 so in 2002 same-sex couples were allowed to adopt in the united kingdom and then finally in 2013 and 2014 is when you finally have same-sex marriage legalized in england and actually, right around that same time, Queen Elizabeth granted Alan Turing a posthumous pardon. Right. And uh, so I was going to ask about that because they, they mentioned that in the text at the end yes, of the movie. That was and obviously, I think that that is something that I don't think that they would probably make up. But. Yes. The, yep. Yep. That, that was you're right. And that you're right. That 2013 pardon was mentioned in the closing text. And that is accurate. OK. So, again, I did just think that was kind of worth mentioning just because. We hadn't really talked about that at all, even when we've mentioned certain individuals who uh, were, were likely, likely homosexual on our timeline there. Because I think that's what everybody forgets is, and I don't know, I, you know, I don't know the, what the percentages are. Is it, you know, roughly, what, 5 to 10% of the population is homosexual? Is that roughly what the estimates are that you've heard? I will look it up right now because this is a number that I think is <laughs> important enough <laughs> this to is right. one that I, I don't think we should guess on. Okay. 
I'm going with five to ten. So again, this is a, a lot of this is it's kind of based on uh, self-reporting, and right? Stuff. Which makes it lower than accurate, right? And and worldwide, these numbers might be different. But so in 2017, there was a Gallup poll in which four and a half percent of adult Americans identified as LGBT of some sort. Oh, okay. Five point one percent of women and three point nine percent of men. Yeah, that's lower than I would have thought. So I wonder if that's because it's self-reported and maybe the five to ten percentage is when you kind of account for those who didn't admit to it in a Gallup poll. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, so so my, my point there is that we kind of all know someone who is in that group today versus when we look back to the Civil War area in the, area of the United States or back to medieval Europe or ancient Rome. Well, Rome's a little different, but we kind of, I think, pretend that it wasn't a thing then. It's like, no, no, no. The percentages were likely always the same. You just had to act differently or hide it more and all those kinds of things. And it's only just within the last, basically, the last generation where it's been safe to be out, I guess is the way to say it. And when we look back at history, we got to remember that, yeah, uh, the same amount of people were LGBTQ back then. They just uh, were kind of forced to keep it under wraps. Yeah, based on a a cursory read through of the (laughs) Wikipedia page for demographics of sexual orientation, uh, it looks like between five and 10 percent is kind of is the estimate, which 10% 10% to me seems pretty high. I agree. Again, I agree. Not, it's just I'm a number I've heard. I'm not basing that on any research or anything that I've done. It's just that. But and maybe that's though. I guess when you when you start when you start counting like, oh, someone's a little bit by and now they're in that 10%. Yes. So 10% of adult humans, <laughs> it says, probably fall into some category of LGBT. But again, those definitions are... Influx. Not yeah. set in stone, right. and you know, people identify as asexual or bisexual. Is you know, does that uh, air quotes here? Does that count? You know, right. so. But anyways, yeah. Anyway, so moving on to computers, and then again, I didn't. I don't have too much to add here, and I did think it was kind of interesting. Is you you could kind of oh parallel the history of computers to what we talked about with the history of timekeeping devices in conjunction with Hugo in that it is kind of tied into these machines and automation and ultimately history of computers is all about calculations and just ways to assist humans in calculations. So with the clock thing, it was just how to keep time. But then what if I'm trying to tabulate figures or deal with numbers? There's basically mechanical ways that have been introduced for centuries as a way to, okay, if I'm trying to do a you know a census in the year 1500 and I'm trying to keep track of hundreds of thousands of people, well, maybe there's a mechanical process that can help me kind of tabulate those figures. And so there's kind of just been a progression of machines. And I, and I do think it's interesting too, and the movie does kind of talk about it, the term digital computer as opposed to or electronic computer as opposed to a computer because basically right. until the 20th century a computer always referred to a person a person who was computing and you would have right. machines that you know some kind of mechanical tool or something that a computer person was using to calculate but it always meant person until the 20th century when you started to have digital computers that were not people, and it was almost kind of like uh, they're applying a term that meant a, a it was a, it was a personification thing. When you were calling these machines computers, it was actually a personification. 
and, right. and, and attributing a human task to these machines. And now that's come to the point where today we only associate computers with the machines and basically are never referring to people. So it's kind of just an interesting language shift there. The example that actually parallels to me is in with the history of the telephone. So to call someone used to always mean go stop by their place and say hello. You would go and physically visit a person and call on them. And then when the telephone was invented, they took the term call and said, oh, I can do it electronically. I can make, instead of an in-person call, I can make a telephone call to the point that that word has now become only associated with a not in-person conversation. And that's just kind of another, anyway, a very similar shift in language that I thought was interesting. Yeah, so basic computers, which is kind of various ways. You know, just you know, yet honestly, they're even counting like the abacus and various forms of astrolabes to keep track of the stars, and all these things were kind of like what we saw in Hugo, where they were kind of mechanical devices and just kind of different ways, but you know, not not electric based, even if they were mechanical based. And but you know, there was you know calculating machines in the 1700s. And this is one I'd heard of, the Pascal machine or Pascaline, invented in the 17th century, which was kind of a mechanical calculator by Blaise Pascal. Again, I don't know much about it other than I've heard of him before, so I thought it was significant. It's also interesting, too, how you could basically, they could program like looms in the early 19th century. And I feel like I've seen something where they kind of, oh, I almost think like the the player pianos, too, where they could play automatically by using those spools. Right. That's basically an early form of a computer. Right. Or like a calliope that plays oh, okay. yeah, with the yeah. With, yeah, same way with the paper roll that goes yeah, through. Yeah, the little things that, yeah. And uh, and then you kind of get into the punch cards, which I remember seeing before. And I think even Hidden Figures deals with the, the punch card computers. But those even go back to the 1880s. And I don't actually know exactly how they work. But basically by having, you know, holes in some places in a card and not in other places, that can tell the machine what numbers to to read and to store, right? And they can output those cards as well. And so again, it's it's a computer. We're just in our twenty first century mindset. We're just so used used to the benefits of quantum physics and how that's made everything smaller. But the principles of ones and zeros and all of that in computers is the same. It's just become so much more possible to make everything happen in such a small small space. But the principles really are the same as far as how you're storing information in these machines through, you know, binary code and other things. So and we don't necessarily have to get into more detail than that unless you have it. But yes, during World War II, specifically with the code breaking and Alan Turing and a lot of other people in the world at the time, we were kind of starting to make that shift to electronic computers. They were far more advanced than anything that had predated them. But then we were still a long way off from getting the microprocessors and a ways right. to in the personal computer and, and things like that that kind of you know explode through the 70s, 80s, and 90s into the internet era. But it is kind of interesting. Again, I just love how history is all connected, and I just yes. I just get so so excited about about all that. Yeah, and uh, so at this point in time, again, you know, like I was talking about before, how it was kind of like this weird kind of like turning point between like technology and deception and all that during World War II is kind of the first time that you have cryptography as it relates to like military communications start to show up. Mm. So like with the Germans, you know, you had the uh, the Enigma machine, a movie that, that isn't one of the ones that we're going to be talking about. But uh, there's, you know, the movie Wind Talkers with oh, yeah, Nicolas Cage, yeah. which, is, which is based on uh, the Navajo code talkers. So that wasn't necessarily uh, cryptography, but it was, you know, a code based on their language. 
And so, you know, they they were kind of like having to, you know, because they still had to send all these communications in the open, like right. over open air. They even say in the movie, like anybody could listen to these. Anybody with the radio right. set can hear the actual transmission. But it's, you know, the cryptography is that, you know, the encoding and the decoding of the message. And, uh, you know, now we have computers that, that do that all for us. Cryptography is Im- infinitely more complicated Right, because it's being done by these quantum computers, yeah. Right. And my understanding with the Navajo code talkers was it, they were just straight up talking to each other, and because it was such a foreign language that the, the Germans just couldn't encrypt, so they would just translate from English to Navajo, and on the other end, Navajo to English? Well, the, yeah, so... The, were there actual code within that? I thought they were just talking. Kind of. So, like, they had code words for different things. Oh, like, okay. You know, like Eagle a, might a be a missile tank, or something like that. Right, yeah. a tank is like a tortoise or something like that, but yeah, essentially... But it was yes, still just their just, language, right. Right. Okay. Which again, because they're the uh, you know old Navajo wouldn't have had a word for tank or plane or stuff like that, so they just kind of subbed right. it in. But yes, my understanding is that because obviously that would have been a code that the Germans could have cracked that turtle meant tank, but this is a completely foreign language and it doesn't have a similar syntax where you can't just you can't just crack a language. It would have been the same thing if it was you know none of the Germans had anyone who spoke Japanese. I think that would have been just as indecipherable. But because we had the I guess the home field advantage of having all these native tribes around with their languages intact that the Germans didn't have access to. So yeah, kind of an interesting advantage that you don't think about. Yeah. I was going to say one one more thing. If people are interested in learning more about things like mechanical calculators uh, or even the Enigma machine, the YouTube channel Numberphile has a, that's Numberphile, like P-H-I-L-E. Right. Like Number has, Lover. They yeah. have, right. They have a, a really cool video on the Enigma machine they have uh, a bunch of cool videos on like mechanical calculators and stuff if you're into that kind of thing. <laughs> okay, so yes, thanks for listening. And again, this probably worked better as a bonus episode since it was so historically inaccurate, but there's still a lot of good stuff to talk about. And we'll continue next Tuesday with Downfall. Downfall.